Hey everyone, my name is Adam and welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. At the end of today's episode, please take a minute and download our free Chestnut Ridge app. It has all our recent message content and more. You can also head to theridge.church to get information on service times and get info on everything going on here at the Ridge. We hope this podcast will encourage and inspire you as you continue to grow in your relationship with God and others. Well, good morning. Some time ago, I read about a Sunday school class for children, and they were putting on a a pageant at their church, and it included the scene where Joseph and Mary were going to go to the inn and find out that there was no room. One of the little boys in the class really wanted the role of Joseph in the play, but he was assigned instead the role of the innkeeper, and he was really upset about it, but he, he didn't say anything to the director. During the rehearsals, though, the boy was trying to think in his own mind what he could do about the situation. Finally, it was time for the pageant to start. The day came. Joseph and Mary made their way across the stage, and they knocked on the door of the inn, and the little boy opened the door and and said rather gruffly, what do you want? And Joseph spoke up and said, we're looking to spend a night here at the inn. And at that point, the little boy opened the door wide and he said, come right in, I'll give you the very best room in the house. Well, poor little Joseph didn't know what to do. This was kind of going off script, but he was thinking quickly on his feet. He looked past the innkeeper and then looked at Mary and he said, this place is a dive. I'm not gonna allow my wife to spend a night here. Let's go to the barn. And suddenly the performance was back on track. When I think of the story of the birth of Christ, there are so many remarkable aspects to the story. It's truly an amazing story, and it's a story, by the way, that I'm convinced really happened. That the events we read about in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke that describe the birth of Christ, these are things that really unfolded exactly as they are recorded there. But one of the most amazing aspects of the story is the humility of it all, the meekness that you see throughout the story. For example, when I think about the fact that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and God the Son and the creator of the universe, the thought of him being born to a couple like Joseph and Mary is really quite remarkable because they were a very poor couple and even though they were descendant of David from thousands or hundreds of years earlier, yeah, that had all been kind of forgotten in a sense, but they were very poor. And I would have expected that maybe Jesus would have been born under circumstances where their parents were more influential or well-known or, or wealthy or whatever. By the way, we know that they were poor based upon the sacrifice that they offered at the temple in honor of Jesus. After Jesus was born, they were required to make a sacrifice in Jerusalem. But the sacrifice that they made is a sacrifice that only the poorest of the poor were allowed to make. They offered a couple small doves or pigeons. Dr. Vincent writes about this. While the lamb would probably cost about $1.75, and I think he's talking about the economy back then, the doves would cost about 16 cents. In other words, the better sacrifice, the lamb, would have cost 10 times as much as what they offered, but they couldn't afford it. 
This was a very humble couple and Jesus was to be born in very humble circumstances. I think of the inconvenience of having to travel to Bethlehem in order to have this child. You might have thought that God would have worked the timing so that they could have had the child born somewhere else in their hometown of Nazareth. But instead we find that they were born, that he was gonna be born in Bethlehem, a town of maybe about 300 people and obviously when, when Joseph and Mary arrived there, there was no room for them to stay anywhere and so Jesus ended up being born in a, in a barn of sorts, born among the animals and this is really quite remarkable when you think about, about it that he's the son of God and God the son and it raises the question why? Again, from a human perspective, I would have written the story so that Jesus would be born in a palace instead. And most theologians, by the way, <clears throat> are convinced that Jesus was actually born in a cave. When I was in Israel, I saw a cave that was still being used by shepherds today. Here's a picture of this cave. You look at it and, and as we were standing around in this cave, you could see the evidence of where the, the sheep had been and everything. This is the, the environment in which Jesus was likely born. And so when we see these Christmas cards that look so nice and so peaceful and you see the hay and the animals just standing around, it really would not have been quite as nice as that. <clears throat> A scholar by the name of Dr. Jameson writes about this. The ancient tradition that our Lord was born in a grotto or cave is quite consistent with the country being rocky. And if you go there, you'll see that's exactly the case. But consider the humility of it all. Consider what I'd call even the humiliation of it all, that the Son of God would be born under these circumstances. And then he was wrapped in these claws and then placed in a feeding trough. And it's remarkable. And you, it raises again the question, Why? Why did God allow his own son to be born under such circumstances? And then when I think of the story of the fact that the first people that saw the face of this baby, apart from the parents, were these shepherds. Shepherds in their fields at night and biblically, shepherds, or I'm sorry, in Bible times, shepherds were looked down upon. And so again, it raises the question, why was it done in this way? The humility of the situation. All of it brings me to my takeaway here today. I'd like to suggest that God came humbly and only the humble will find him. Only people who are humble enough to look to him, only them, those many times who find themselves even in humble circumstances, will tend to look to Jesus. And that's the situation in which we find these guys. The shepherds in their fields, they were a humble class of people. Now, today we're going to wrap up our short series titled Christmas Portraits. And if you look at the Christmas story, you realize that there were primarily three different ways in which people responded to the birth of Jesus Christ. One was the response of King Herod. Herod was someone that I would regard as an enemy of Christ. He tried to kill the baby Jesus. And I realize that in our world today, there are many that still oppose Christians and Christ in other countries, they're being persecuted and even put to death for their faith in Christ. And so there are some who are enemies of Christ, although they don't tend to be in this country, it seems. The second group that we looked at were the religious leaders. And these were guys who knew the right answers when it came to the question, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? They knew the answer to the question. And yet when these visitors came, <clears throat> 
from afar, traveling probably from Babylon, traveling for months. They arrive in Jerusalem and they announce, where is the Messiah? We've seen his star. And they had traveled all this distance because they knew it was true. And yet, the religious leaders could answer the question, he'd be born in Bethlehem. Yet they didn't take the time to go check out the story. You realize that Bethlehem was about five miles away, that they could have walked to Bethlehem in about two hours. And yet they were apathetic. And I think part of the problem was that they didn't see their need. And it gets me back to my takeaway. God came humbly and only the humble will find him. It was those who were not humble, those who were self-sufficient, those that didn't see their need, that did not get to share in the beauty of this moment. And by the way, I think this is why many of us came to faith in Christ. We came to a point of maybe desperation in our lives. When we have baptisms here at the church, we hear the stories of how people came to faith in Jesus Christ. And so many times, they had come to a point in their life where they were kind of in the basement of their lives. Things had fallen apart for them. Maybe their marriage fell apart. Maybe they were in bad health. Maybe they lost their job. And somehow from within this context, maybe for the first time in their life, they looked up and they cried out to God for help and they found Jesus Christ. Oftentimes that is how it works. But let's look at the story of these shepherds, these humble shepherds who were working in their fields at night. The story's found in Luke chapter two and we're gonna begin in verse eight. So it's Luke chapter two, beginning in verse eight and you can follow along as I read. In the same region, and this is talking about the region surrounding Bethlehem, in the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. By the way, some have suggested that these shepherds were raising the Passover sheep based upon the time of year in which this would have happened. Verse nine, then an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. The literal translation here is they feared a great fear. It's really strong in the original Greek language. They were, they were scared to death. Verse 10, but the angel said to them, don't be afraid for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today a savior who is Messiah the Lord was born for you in the city of David. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in cloth and lying in a feeding trough. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the feeding trough. After seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard, just as they had been told." Now, I love the humility of the story, and that's kind of what I'm focusing on here. But this one aspect of the story is kind of glorious. It's just a little bit of a different aspect of the story. 
And I think that this is included here and why God allowed this to happen is because I don't think that the birth of Jesus Christ could occur without there being some kind of a heavenly celebration. This was an occasion for the whole world to rejoice. I'm reminded of the occasion where Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey on that first Palm Sunday and how the people were shouting his praises and the children were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to him who comes in the name of the Lord. And the religious leaders said to Jesus, tell these children to stop. And do you remember what Jesus' answer was? He said, if they keep silent, the rocks will cry out. And I think it was a similar situation here at the birth of Jesus Christ. It just could not pass without some kind of, of celebration taking place. But again, it was a celebration that took place to an audience of shepherds. And so let's talk about the shepherds just a little bit. In Jesus' day, they were part of a local, lower working class. They were looked down upon by society, although I am noting here today that God tends to look to those others look down upon. He looks toward those that others look down upon. Dr. Warren Wearsby writes about the shepherds. He says, in that day, shepherds were considered at the, to be at the lowest rung of the social ladder, the very lowest rung. Dr. Liefeld has this to say. Among the occupations, shepherding had a lowly place. Shepherds were considered untrustworthy and their work made them ceremonially unclean. He then adds, thus the obvious implication is that the gospel first came to the social outcasts of Jesus' day. Hence my takeaway, God came humbly, and only the humble will find him. Now I like to imagine what it would be like, and many times when I read Bible stories, I like to imagine what it'd be like to be in that exact situation. What it would have been like for those shepherds, I'm sure the night began normally and uneventfully as it usually did. That most of the time, these shepherds just sat there. I mean, occasionally, maybe an, an animal would come to attack the flock, but usually it was a, a quiet evening, and it was probably very, very peaceful. Most likely, it was very dark. And then all of a sudden, one angel appears. And with the angel came the glory of God. We read about it in verse 9 of Luke 2. <clears throat> then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Again, they feared a great fear. Now, I've never had an angel appear before me, but I have to admit it would probably freak me out. I don't know how I'd respond, but I know in the Bible, most of the time, times when an angel appeared to someone, the first words that the angel said were, don't be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. And that's again what this angel said here. But there's something that's noteworthy about the appearance of this angel that's different than most of the other occasions where an angel appeared in the Bible. And that is that this angel was accompanied by the glory of God, the light of God, what's called in the Old Testament the Shekinah glory. It says that the angel appeared and then the, the glory of God shone around them and they were completely immersed in this light, glorious light. And the light represented the very presence of God in their midst. Now, no doubt, these guys had heard about the glory of God in the stories of the Old Testament. They knew how God had led, led the Israelites in the Old Testament through the wilderness, through a, 
a, a pillar of fire by night. It was a cloud by day, but the glory of God was there. They knew how when Moses had the tabernacle built that as soon as it was dedicated that the glory of God actually filled the tabernacle so that the priest could not even enter. It was so, so glorious. And we know that Moses was able to speak to God and experience his glory in such a way that his face began to glow from just being in the presence of God. There are occasions where the temple was filled with the glory of God, where Solomon, after he dedicated the temple in Jerusalem, suddenly the glory of God came down. These shepherds had heard about God's glory being revealed, but most of the time it was to people that we might regard as leaders or important people, people like Moses, people like the prophet Isaiah. He had a glimpse of the glory of God or like a king like Solomon, but lowly shepherds. Who were they that the angel of the Lord and the glory of God should appear to them? The very glory of the creator of the universe. It must have really caused them to wonder, who are we? And the message that the angels proclaimed was amazing as well. In verses 10 and 11, we read, but the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, a Savior, who is Messiah the Lord, was born for you in the city of David. I love the way this is worded. I proclaim to you good news that will bring great joy. It is for all the people. It's not just for those who are great. It's not just for those who are mighty. It's not for the, those who are just wealthy or influential. This is a story and a message that's available to all, all people, and, and maybe especially those who are humble. And this gets again to my point. God came humbly, and I think only the humble will find him. Now, if you disagree with the premise, realize that this is an idea that we find found in many places throughout the Bible. For example, James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote about this in James 2 and verse 5. James, I call him the half-brother of Jesus, by the way, because he had the same mother as Jesus did, Mary, but Jesus' father, of course, was God. And Joseph Joseph was James' father. But James wrote this. He said, listen, my dear brothers, Didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Didn't God choose the poor in this world, those that the world regards as poor? And it's not always, by the way, a financial poverty. But didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith? The apostle Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29. He said, brothers, Consider your calling. You know, stop for a moment and just think about your calling. Not many are wise from a human perspective. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. I mean, some are. Some fit into these categories. Some are are powerful. Some are maybe of noble birth. Some are wise. But not many, he says. Verse 27, instead... God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, which that's what the shepherds were in their day, 
to bring to nothing what is viewed as something in the eyes of this world. Verse 29, so that no one can boast in his presence. He went on to say in verse 31, in order that as it is written, the one who boasts must boast in the Lord. The good news is this, this means that Jesus is available for me, that salvation is available to me, just an average person like you. Now, what was the message that was a message of such great joy? Let's read verses 10 and 11 one last time. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And then here's the message. Today, a Savior who is Messiah the Lord was born for you in the city of David. What was God offering the world? A Messiah who was a savior. Now it raises the question, to what do we, from what do we need to be saved? You know, in the Bible, the word saved just means to be delivered. You know, and many times when we think of the word saved, we put it in a religious context, but, but really the word just means to be delivered, just like it does in other contexts. And so when you read the word saved, even in the Bible, you have to ask the question, saved from what? And that's the question that's raised here. Jesus is called a a savior, a Messiah. Now, most of the people in Israel were expecting a military savior. They were expecting a king to come, and rightfully so, because in the Old Testament, it was predicted that a king would reign in Jerusalem forever and ever. At the time that this story takes place, Israel was under domination by the Romans. And they were looking for this military leader to rise up, defeat Rome, and reign on the throne in in Israel. But is that the kind of savior that's being referred to here? It's not. Although one day Jesus will reign. Remember the words that were spoken to Joseph concerning Mary's pregnancy in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21. We read, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's the good news. That's that's the greatest news there could possibly be. The problem that we all have in this world is sin. The word sin, by the way, simply means to miss the mark. It means all of us have missed the mark with God. The problem is that frankly, we are the problem. In other words, we can't fix the problem. We need a deliverer. We need someone outside of ourselves to fix the problem of our sinfulness because really anything that we would offer God is something that's presented with sinful hands. And how can we fix the fact that we're sinful? How could we possibly clean ourselves up enough to stand in the presence of a God who's perfect and holy and sinless? a God who's completely righteous. How could we possibly heal ourselves of our own spiritual brokenness? God knew, of course, we couldn't save ourselves. There's nothing we can do. And this is, this is why he sent his son Jesus to come into this world, the son of God and God the son, to take on flesh and blood. And the point was so that he could live a sinless life and end up dying in our place and for our sin. You see, the holiness and the justice of God the judge requires that sin get the just penalty. 
And he cannot just sweep our sins under the carpet. He cannot pretend that we haven't sinned. He is a just judge. Sin has to be paid for. And we couldn't pay the price. And so he came up with a plan. His own son, Jesus Christ, volunteered to die in our place and for our sin. He had committed no sin. As Paul writes, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. You see, what if someone who had never done anything wrong could take our place? What if he could take the penalty? That's exactly what Jesus came to do. In Romans 5 eight, one of my favorite verses we read, but God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's why he came into this world, to die in our place, to take the penalty. And of course, he rose again from the dead, and this demonstrates that the payment he had made on our behalf was received by God the Father. The question is raised, though, how do we receive this forgiveness of sins? How can we make sure we're saved, delivered from the penalty of our sin? Well, there's only one requirement that's found throughout the pages of the Bible, and that requirement is faith. From Genesis to Revelation, there's one requirement, faith. Specifically, the idea of trust. I don't mean just believing a set of facts. I'm talking about putting your trust in Jesus Christ to be your deliverer. That's how we get right with God. John wrote about this in John 3.16. He said, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Whoever puts their trust in him will not experience eternal death but instead will experience eternal life. Have you done that? Have you come to a point where you've recognized that you've sinned against God and that you need a savior and then reached out to Jesus Christ to be your savior? In a moment, I'm gonna close with a prayer, a prayer that I wanna encourage you to pray in your own heart to God if you'd like to put your trust in Jesus to be your savior. It's not the prayer itself that saves, but it's the faith behind it. If you agree with, with what the prayer says, I encourage you to pray it in your own heart to God. But before we get to that, I want to briefly close off the story here and see how these, these shepherds responded to the message. And frankly, by the way, they believed. They were told the story, they believed. Unlike the religious leaders, they believed. Unlike Herod, they believed. But going to verse 15, we read, when the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a feeding trough. After seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned glorifying God and praising God for all they had seen and heard just as they had been told. These shepherds been, had been told to look for a particular sign, and that is that this one who has been declared to be the Messiah would be found wrapped in cloths. Literally, he was, baby Jesus was wrapped in these strips of cloth, and then he was placed in a feeding trough. How unusual. Some have suggested, by the way, that these shepherds actually owned the cave where this took place, that they knew exactly where the angels were leading them 
because again, Bethlehem was very small and there were limited places where these animals might be kept. And so they show up and they find it exactly as they had been told, the Messiah, the savior of the world has been born. And they go around spreading the message. They become evangelists to this message. But why again was Jesus born under these circumstances? God came humbly and only the humble will find him. A scholar by the name of Lenski writes, the question is still skeptically asked as to why these shepherds should have been selected for the angel's announcement. The answer is as simple to the believer as it ever was because God found them the kind of people to whom he could communicate such good, such news. These were the kind of people who he could communicate the message to and they would receive it, they would believe it. I love how Jesus said in his ministry, come to me all who are weak and heavy laden, heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. He then went on to say, I am humble and meek of heart. You'll find rest for your souls. Have you put your trust in him? Now, those of you that already have a relationship with Jesus Christ through faith in him, I wanna encourage you to really celebrate during this time of year and not focus your attention on the way the world is right now in a COVID-19 world. Maybe you're focusing on the fact that we're now having to do our Christmas Eve services at a distance. And some of these things might be hard for you, but nobody's canceling Christmas. And we're still celebrating the birth of this Savior. And I encourage you to devote some time to set a time, a time to really adore this child. Come, let us adore him and appreciate and celebrate because we have in this time especially an occasion to be joyful. We know the savior of the world and the world really needs the savior that we have. Finally, for those of you again that don't know where you stand with God and you say, I'd like to put my trust in Jesus and you recognize that, that you've sinned against God and you realize you can't fix the problem and, and you believe what I've, I've said about it, what's taught in the pages of the Bible, that God sent his own son to be your savior that he, he died in your place and for your sin and he defeated sin and death when he rose again from the dead and that if you put your trust in him, you'll have eternal life. I'd like to close with a prayer that I wanna encourage you to pray in order to receive him as your savior. As John wrote, as many as receive him to those who believe in his name, God gives the privilege to become his children. And if you pray this prayer with me, I wanna encourage you too to let us know about it because we'd love to send you some booklets that just explain more what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. But here's the prayer. I just encourage you to bow your head and, and pray this own prayer in your heart. You can even use your own words, something along these lines. Dear God, I know I've sinned. I know I've done things that are wrong. And then I can't fix it. I need a savior. And I do believe that you sent your son, Jesus, that he came into this world and lived a sinless life so that he could die in my place and for all the things I've done wrong. And he rose again from the dead, demonstrating that you, Father, accepted his sacrifice on my behalf. And so today I put my trust in Jesus. Today I receive him as my savior Today I claim the promise in John 3, 
God where you said whoever believes in him would receive the gift of eternal life. I pray this in Jesus' name and because of what he did for me. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening and we will see you next time.